Welcome to Dungeons & Dinners, where the love of fantasy is food for thought. I'm your host, Brett Lindley, and today I'm talking about railroads, sandboxes, and how they apply to meal planning. A big shout out to all of the new listeners that found this podcast via Reddit and all of our new recent listeners. I'm so happy to have you all here. Welcome to the D&D dinner table. Let's get to it. Welcome. Take a seat anywhere. Be right with you. You see an old house surrounded by thorny vines in the distance. Your party decides that since you're all low on health, class abilities, and spell slots, that maybe you should just press onwards a ways and try to find a safer place to make camp before returning later to investigate. You take a wide circle around the house, keeping clear of the spooky vibes it gives off. A mile or so through the woods later, and another spooky house, eerily similar to the one you just passed. The party agrees to make a hard turn and walk straight to leave the woods, but the house appears in front of them just a few feet later. I, uh, guess we're going inside the house then, someone mutters. Uh, no, I'm gonna sit down right here and take a short rest, maybe even a long one. If we're gonna be forced inside this house, then we might as well do it with full HP. Guys, I'm really hoping to make it back to town. I, I would like to spend some gold. I've had the same sword since this campaign started and can finally afford something new. If we have to go in, I say we run from any combat and just get through whatever this is and leave. Welcome to the railroad. Some of you may be familiar with this story. Of course, if it happens inside Ravenloft, maybe it's a little bit easier to explain. But outside of Ravenloft, this is something very similar to an encounter that I had to get through, and it was really disappointing to have something kind of forced on the campaign. Uh, I've even seen a few memes that had almost this exact same scenario, where, uh, you know, the dungeon master crafts something, either a physical object or a battle map or just a chunk of a campaign, and really wants to use it and sometimes may end up being a little bit too forceful with using it. Railroading is the concept of a campaign being, quote, on the rails. This means that pretty much no matter what the players choose to do, the events of the campaign are going to flow in a specific manner, certain events are going to happen, and the players are pretty much completely unable to stop them or prevent them from happening. Being on the rails is generally regarded as a more negative Dungeons & Dragons or TTRPG experience because it takes away a lot of the agency that players feel that they have to make choices and play roles within the game. It's supposed to be a cooperative storytelling experience, but if only one person is telling the story, then it seems like that there's not as much going on. There's not as much ability for the players to really influence that. And at that point, when does it stop being a, a cooperative experience and just become more of listening to an audiobook? And while I, I do definitely understand that and have been railroaded, uh, I also understand as being almost a lifelong DM where it can be really difficult to provide something that is the most flexible for everyone. Now, I want to make a, a very clear distinction between railroading and one-shots versus, like, uh, adventure guides and things like that. 
Um, there, there's a difference between having a pathway that you want the campaign to go in and forcing the campaign to go that direction. So with one-shots and adventure guides, usually players and DMs are all on the same page about what is going on. So leaving it at a critical moment and abandoning a, a big piece of story and just setting off in the woods to go find a new adventure is pretty unlikely to happen if everybody agrees that they want to get through, you know, the Curse of Strahd or, you know, it, any of the other adventure guides. I'm, I know I'm going to misname them if I try to name them off the top of my head, so... I don't use many of them. I'll read through them for ideas, but I generally don't run adventure guides. That they're great to run though. I do not want to say anything against any of the like prepackaged campaign stuff. It's really good to run those types of things. Uh I think Descent and Avernus I've pulled a, a few things from. Got one. All right. Um and and same with one shots. Most of the time a one shot is just that. It is a single adventure that everybody agrees to play. It has kind of a set pathway. And as long as everybody is aware that that's what's going on, then it's totally okay to run those types of things. Railroading, though, is when the players think that uh, everything is up in the air and they have a lot of choice, but none of their choices matter. Uh, if a specific guard or NPC is critical to the storyline, they have plot armor. They're unkillable. The party will maybe get arrested or additional monsters will join the fight or the villain will flee even if he's been polymorphed into a snail. Some NPC will pick him up and take him away and it doesn't matter. And or, you know, a quest item is in a location and, and no matter what, the players can't get a hold of it because the, the villain needs to steal it away from them. Even if, you know, the villain's been polymorphed into a slug and... Uh, the goblin has picked them up and just happens to make a, you know, unbelievably high check to vault over the 30-foot the chasm that the players were trying to make a rope bridge for, uh, grab the magical crystal, and run away. That's more along the lines of railroading, is when things kind of jump the shark, which, uh, you know, saying meaning, like, it, something impossible happens or, or at least so improbable or so many improbable things happen in a row without the players being able to react or interact with it that it just seems like they are set pieces instead of participants in the experience. So the counteracting, uh, you know, the, the opposite of this, I guess, really, is just the sandbox. So a sandbox experience is the entire world is available for the players to play in. They can make any choices and decisions that they want, and no matter what they do, they're going to be the ones that are more or less kind of building the adventure, choosing their own path, making the world their own. And the sandbox often sounds, from a player perspective, like a great idea. It's something that allows them ultimate freedom to decide their fate, their future, and their fortune. But it also puts an unreasonable amount of expectations on the DM. Because as a dungeon master, if players want to abandon an adventure in the middle of it, you, you kind of just have to let them. And it could cause uh, what's known as the sheet rip, where you just tear up pages upon pages of content that you had written for your adventure, for the players to experience over the next few hours or days as you guys play. 
it's also something where it, it it's just a lot of pressure to improv something new in in all these scenarios. It's hard enough when you have something pre-written and your players do something uh, completely unexpected to have to suddenly react to that while keeping things flowing, especially just in the moment-to-moment basis, much less when hours and hours of stuff that you have written and worked on, you now don't get to show. And it's it, there's a lot of ways to kind of combat this. There are ways to combine these things together, and there are some understandings that you can kind of come to at or after a game session to help alleviate this in a, a few different ways. So one of these things is especially setting up beforehand uh, when a campaign is about to begin we talk about this some in the session zero episode is just talking with your players about what kind of game you're going to run how much sandbox and how much railroading may be there it's also really really critically important to understand the difference between railroading and puppeting so railroading means that the campaign overall will generally flow in a certain direction, like an adventure's guide or a one-shot, or even just the next leg of an adventure. But puppeting is forcing that to happen by taking away player agency and telling a player how they think, act, or react to a certain scenario without their input and possibly even going against their player background traits or roles and and forcing them to do something that they didn't say they wanted to do. Puppeting is something that I am incredibly against, uh, and I think most players are too. And it's because I've you know while I'm mostly a lifelong DM, I have been on the player end a few times, and having your character puppeted and being told how you think and how you'd react to a situation is something that is is really dangerous it can really make you feel like that's not how what i was thinking and it's not how i'd react at all as a dm you really can't be a mind reader and as a player having somebody tell you what you do it means you're not playing anymore it means somebody else is playing your character for you this is different from jaegering where another player takes control of your character while you're gone uh, or even the dm but Jaegering, I try to use really, really lightly um, if a player can't make it to a session and everybody else is is able to go as long as that player isn't super critical. If that if the, the session is all surrounding that player's backstory, I would probably cancel the session. But if it's uh, maybe more of a simple adventure and people are just kind of running through some some random tables, maybe a couple of random encounters... Uh, just combat as long as I've seen that player fight enough times to generally know what they would do I'm going to do my best to keep them alive and maybe keep them in the back of combat or just tank if they would tank things like that control their character to the best of my ability but I'm not going to try to role play that character that's the really dangerous stuff as if puppeting happens for role playing that's it's really difficult to get over and can cause a lot of animosity at the table Now, this is different from asking the DM what you would think about a certain situation or looking for help or assistance, and sometimes a little bit of this can be okay, especially for newer players or people that may be less comfortable with role-playing, but it's something that you need to make sure that you have established a level of credibility and a level of understanding before you do it. 
just taking the reins of a character uh, without really having that understanding built in and that trust there is a, a real quick way to break that trust of saying, I thought that I was in control of my character and all of a sudden you took it away from me for something that, especially if it's a non-critical or even if it is a, a very critical moment, that's probably even worse is uh, I was had plans to do this action against this big boss fight and you just took my character away from me. And a lot of times this can be uh, kind of covered up in ways that are just as bad by saying, well, you were mind controlled or it was all just a dream anyway. And while, yes, you know, there are, you know, telekinesis and mind controls and modify memories and things like that. And while they can be used to great literary and roleplay effect, it's something that you have to be very careful with. If you're a low-level character, say level 2 or 3, and you're fighting some CR 20, you know, archdemon, then it's probably less about the fact that you are mind-controlled in that scenario and more about why were you in a situation where you had to be up against such a strong opponent to begin with, and could there have been a better way to push the storyline along than to have to force you to fight such a creature just to be mind-controlled just so some plot thing could happen. Uh, there's a lot of ways to get through it, but there's—I I do understand where it can be difficult from a DM's perspective to try to come up with these solutions, to try to find ways to push the story forward without forcing the characters through it. It's not an exact science. It takes just some time and practice. But some of the things that you can do is plan for—kind of planning for the unplanned. And my personal favorite is not writing the novel. D&D, if, if you want to railroad, if you want to puppet characters, go write stories, go write books, because it's there you are in control. There you can make everything happen, and you can make every choice and decision for every character. Or if you want to have a story that's that's cooperative and that everybody gets to engage in, then don't write paragraphs upon paragraphs of stuff that's supposed to happen. Instead, write bullet points. It takes a lot of time constraints away from you when you don't have to spend four hours writing out every possible thing that can happen. Of course, improving is a skill that comes with time, practice, patience, and you will mess up several, many, many times. But it can also make for some of the most fun experiences where you only have a few bullet points written down, and your players come back and surprise you by adding to the story themselves. The less information you give them, the more likely they are to vocalize their thoughts. And encourage that. Encourage them to vocalize what they're thinking about and how they're thinking about reacting to a situation, because it can give you a lot of ideas that you may use down the road. And just because you're the DM does not mean that you should not be taking notes about what's going on. While the players are taking notes about the NPCs that they've encountered and what their backgrounds are, or the name of the most recent town and its tavern keeper, you should be taking notes of what the players were thinking and how they were reacting to a situation. Because these notes can go back and, and give you ideas later. The players thought that the villain was this guy, 
And while I had originally written that the villain was this other person, you know, maybe this, uh, maybe this direction that the players are taking it could be really fun. And how interesting would it be if something that they thought about that wasn't originally true actually is true, and they did know it all along, giving them that moment of, I knew it, I had this, I wrote it down, I knew they were the bad guy. And so be open to that sort of thing. Be open to taking a few notes about how players react. If someone always jumps to combat, then maybe give them a situation where that's going to be detrimental to them, as well as giving them a situation where it can help out. This will also help you do this blending of Railroad and Sandbox. Having a few bullet points in multiple directions can really ease things up if you notice that players may not be super interested in the hook that you've given them, and maybe looking at possibly trying to find another adventure, have a couple of things on the back burner that can be thrown in at any time. Anything from a pre-planned combat to an inspiring one-shot can be used to help deviate these situations where players decide that they're no longer interested in the main hook that you have provided them. One-shots don't have to just be run as a one-shot where everybody agrees to use pre-generated characters or roll up new third levels to play through for a couple of hours. You can hold on to some one-shots that a lot of them are built in ways that you can kind of interject them almost anywhere. My favorite example of this is the Great Sheep Chase. The Great Sheep Chase can happen, while it's kind of recommended that it occurs in a town, it can pretty much be plopped in literally anywhere. Anywhere that a player could encounter a sheep. Well, a rogue sheep that happens to be a polymorphed wizard from a few miles down the bend, that is. While probably not something that's going to happen in the Underdark or the Feywild, just about any overworld area, a sheep can pretty much appear. You can also turn it into a goat if your characters are on a mountainside. The sheep approaches the players with a scroll in its mouth, identifies the most magically kitted out one, whether it be a wizard or somebody that looks like they're pretty experienced carrying potions and scroll book cases and whatnot, and the adventure starts there. So if your players are looking for an adventure and not finding anything in the tavern, or they're just lost and don't have the next piece of information they need and are getting frustrated trying to push on the current campaign, and you're unable to find a place to give them the breadcrumb they need, have a sheep run up to them, start the one shot, get them completely distracted from what's going on by interjecting something just into the middle of it. This interjection of chaos will get your players' minds off of what's currently going on and gets you something that you can generate a fast, exciting hook that is likely to get the player's attention and get them moving in a different direction for a little while, giving you at least a few hours of gameplay that's pretty much set that you can then use to buy yourself some time to find some new hooks or a a way to interject that breadcrumb that's going to get things back on the original story. And this is where it's it's such a difficult thing because railroad is one of those terms that too much story equals railroad and not enough story equals sandbox, but there is a happy medium where your plot may move through certain 
aspects and certain things may happen in the world regardless of player interaction, but this doesn't mean that you're forcing them to follow it. The story can unveil itself in the background, and you can think about how your big bad evil guy is going to react to the player's actions, even though your big bad evil guy is miles away or watching from another plane of existence. It's the difference between forcing action and having things that are probably going to happen as players get to them. To not railroad doesn't mean don't plan out anything, it just means don't force it. Likewise, there are ways for all roads traveled to lead to a similar conclusion or a, a same place. If all signs point to a portal opening in a month or so, regardless of if the players follow there to try to stop the opening of the portal or go off on some different direction chasing a sheep, the portal may open anyway, and things may change in the world. That's not railroading. You gave your players plenty of opportunity to explore, interrupt, or likewise disrupt such said opening of portal, and if they choose not to, well, there's going to be consequences for that. And in fact, maybe they shouldn't have. If the, the if all signs point towards some CR20 archdevil opening this portal, and a bunch of level 1s rush in to try to stop it, well, they're probably going to have a bad time. And maybe they get mind-controlled and forced away, or to bow to said archdevil. I wouldn't probably just slaughter them outright. I probably wouldn't mind-control them too hard either, though. Anyway, basically what I'm saying is that you can have different plot points that converge upon an area where you gently guide players, but avoid using the stick against players and try to use the carrot. And if they don't follow a carrot, then maybe try an apple or an orange or move things to a different area completely. A portal opens on that content and that con or not content, a continent, and that continent may be doomed, but the world hasn't ended and we can go over somewhere else and maybe have an adventure at sea while we try to escape the new horde of monsters pouring out from hell while we try to find backup. It's all about the presentation and how much forcing you put. If you find yourself forcing your story and the players, I mean, that's just the point of forcing. If you have to force it, the players probably aren't enjoying it. Therefore, you should probably find some ways to back off or, like I said, sidetrack them. Get them on something else. So what does this have to do with meal planning? What does railroading and sandbox role-playing games have to do with getting your fridge in order and getting a better grocery list? Surprisingly, it can have a lot to do with it. A lot of times where I see people talking about going on diets or wanting to do meal planning, they write up these strict menus about what's available, what they're going to do that week, and they get down to breakfast, lunch, dinner... Every itemized snack that they're going to eat, their specific calorie intakes for every day for the next week or month even. And then, you know, the first day goes through, maybe the second day, but eventually a, a random Tuesday or Thursday afternoon will come along where their meal plan says tuna sandwich for lunch. And you're just not feeling like a tuna sandwich. You don't want to have it, but... You feel like if you break and and don't have a tuna sandwich that all of a sudden 
you're off the rails, all of the other meals are going to be shot, your entire meal plan is failed because you missed one stringent rule that you put on yourself. This also just, in my opinion, leads to that same feeling of kind of helplessness, like you're suddenly a slave to your meal plan. And if you don't meal plan, that's okay. You're in the sandbox. You're just making up whatever you want to eat as you want to eat things. But this can run into some of the same situations that a sandbox campaign does, where you just hem and haw. You don't know what to do. You don't have any idea of what campaign elements or ingredients are available in your fridge. Uh, Maybe the meat that you'd pulled out has gone bad, or some vegetables have soured and gotten rotten suddenly forcing you to adjust what you thought was going to be what you were going to eat that day because you just hadn't really planned and looked through to know what ingredients you had available. So I would like to offer some lessons that I've gotten from meal planning, and I would like you to think about it not just in terms of meal planning and grocery shopping, but using the same types of steps for how you might plan out a campaign and how you might find that bridge between the railroad and the sandbox. It was about a year or two ago where my wife and I decided to start trying to do more meal planning. We had found ourselves constantly in a situation of, what do you want for dinner? I don't know, what do you want? I don't know, what do you want? Back and forth ad nauseum until one of us caved in and just decided to cook something, and while we both would eat it, maybe we weren't really as satisfied as we wanted to be. And we decided that we should start meal planning, but we didn't really know how to approach it. We didn't want anything super strict. So we decided to instead just write down as many of our meals as we could that we both enjoyed and maybe had eaten recently over the course of the next month. This is the taking notes while you DM sort of phase. See how much combat, exploration, what excites the players, and what doesn't as you move along. We wrote down all of the meals that we liked to have, all of the ones that we'd had really recently and therefore didn't want to have again, and as well as jotting down some recipes of things that we would like to try and things that we wanted to do. We had a giant master list that we had built with, I don't know, maybe 50 or 60 different dinner ideas, ranging from super simple grilled cheese sandwiches to complex meals that, while we didn't like to cook them very often, were things that we still really enjoyed. We took this giant master list and started marking off ones that we had already had within the last couple of weeks and therefore were probably pretty unlikely to make again. We also highlighted things that we thought sounded interesting and might be categories of items that we could make for the next week. We then decided that we didn't, as because we didn't want to have a stringent meal plan where Monday was tuna sandwiches and Tuesday was, you know, chicken cordon blues, we decided that it would be best if we just gave ourselves some flexibility and some room to make decisions as we went through each night. Instead of having to rigidly say, you cook tonight and I'll cook tomorrow, Let's give ourselves a range of meals that both of us have some experience in cooking or and maybe a few meals that only one of us was preferred to be the one chefing for the evening. Put them all down and kind of see what we came up with. What resulted is that we would plan out our next week by selecting six meals. 
We would go through, pick six meals from a variety of things that we enjoyed, hadn't had recently, and made sure that we had a good balance between who would cook them, and offered ourselves one free day. This free day generally meant either pizza, (laughs) frozen or takeout, uh, some kind of takeout, or like a leftovers night where we would just fin for ourselves and make whatever that individual wanted, or something that was so ultra easy that we just didn't have to decide. This gave us that flexibility to say, one night this week, we can just pick whatever. We don't have to have this rigid meal plan. And as we started working with this, it it also allowed us to say that it doesn't say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, etc., etc. It is just six items plus one free item. That way, when it came down to, hey, what do you want to have for dinner tonight? Instead of having to think about all the infinite possibilities of meals that could be enjoyed, we had a list. And that first night, there's six items, plus a whatever-you-feel-like item. But as the week continued on, that the list gets pared down more and more to where you'd only have to pick from a few different things. Well, we have six items on the list. What do you want to have from this list is a much easier question to answer then what do you want to have out of the sum total possibilities in the universe of food to consume for the evening? Making the decision easier by having a little bit of a list started helping us realize uh, also what foods we were more likely to shut down. The more times we did this, the more times we found out that while we really enjoy salmon patties, it's just not something that ever sounds good. Every time we put it on the list, it's always the last thing we want to make for the week. And if we get to it, we feel kind of ugh and maybe decide to have a second cheat night instead. So maybe we take that thing off the list and set it into one of those random items that can be made at any time instead of trying to put it on the list. Doing meal planning like this ended up doing a lot more than just making it easier to decide what we wanted to have for dinner that night. It had another effect where we did two things at the same time that we meal planned. The first thing that we did was check through the cabinets, the fridge, the freezer, etc. just to see what we had on hand and kind of compare it to the list of things that we haven't had for a while to see if there was anything that we could start eating down or using before its expiration date came along. The other thing that it did was it also helped us make really efficient grocery lists. Uh, This is that kind of, if you don't know what monster you want to use in combat, look at the environment that the characters are in. They're probably not going to go up against a Remoraz if they're in the middle of a plains, you know, they probably want to be in an icy mountainous area for that. Not saying you can't run a Remorize outside of it, but it gives you some ideas. Pare down your encounters based on the location that your players are. So we were able to build our grocery lists so efficiently because we knew exactly what we wanted to eat for the next week. While we didn't know exactly what day we wanted it, most of the food's going to stay good at least that long, And we could go through and check all of the cabinets to see, do we have all of the ingredients that we need, not just to make tonight's dinner, but dinner for the next week? And we can go through, look at the list, say we need, you know, milk, eggs, and cheese, but we also need uh, special noodles, or we could use to re-up our, 
you know, stock of cream cheese or something to make a very specific meal with, especially things like heavy whipping cream that we don't use very often, but are really key ingredients in a few meals. It's not something that we just have on hand all the time. So it's good to not have to make those extra grocery trips in the middle of the week for one item that's missing from your list of things that you would like to cook. Additionally, we started making our lists a little bit different, sometimes putting up to eight or nine different things on the list, especially uh, during things like summer months when we might have a day that we want to grill, but we're not really sure if we're going to be in the mood for it. Let's go ahead and prep that anyway, because more than likely in the next two or three weeks, we can take the frozen chicken and grill it. Or if anything else, we should at least be aware of our levels of charcoal and propane or, you know, smoking briquettes or wood chips or whatever we want to use, especially things that are less perishable or non-perishable. Having those things on stock and having a list of eight items to choose from, even though we know we're only going to cook six meals that week, gives us that extra wiggle room. This is like having a a one-shot in your back pocket, something that you really enjoy, or potentially a a breadcrumb that could really change the direction of a campaign. You can always find a way to key the players into a certain scenario where, oh my goodness, the ally that they've had for so long is actually turned against them, and finding a way to be able to drop that in anywhere. It's also... Uh, a great comparison that uh, something I've seen Matt Colville use and, and describe was you don't necessarily have to sheet rip just because your players completely avoided something that you've created. Now, this doesn't mean use the example from the beginning and just keep dropping that house in front of them wherever they are, but if your characters or your players move past some significant portion of a dungeon or some really interesting conversation or side quest that was available, that doesn't mean that you can't use that whole chunk of dungeon or whole side quest and just change out the monsters that are in it or change out the race of the characters that were supposed to be there. Instead of a side quest in an elven city, uh, if the players end up in a dwarven fortress underground just change all of the elvish names to dwarvish ones and, you know, change, you know, pointy ears to beards. And the side quest probably still works out. Uh, Maybe instead of a fancy necklace, the dwarves want an ancient smithing hammer or something. Change out just the key items and keep the rest of the story intact. If it's a section of a dungeon, you know, change the goblins out for kobolds or gnolls or whatever atypical monster you want to throw in there change the loot up a little bit, maybe instead of a cave, it's an abandoned library, and the room layout can pretty much still be the same. You just change the floor tiles out, and poof, you've got a whole section of a dungeon completed. I'm just saying, don't throw away something just because your players didn't encounter it exactly when you wanted them to, and without forcing it upon them, you can still use that as an encounter later on. In fact, you may end up finding out that you can take a couple of rooms of a dungeon that were missed that had some really interesting trap in them, and instead make it a much bigger room and tweak the trap a little bit, throw a boss monster in there, and now you have an epic encounter that you can use later on. Or take that epic boss encounter and shrink it down, make the monster a lower CR, and change the difficulty of the setup and the trap that's there for the lair, and make it a single room in a dungeon that can be found later reuse what you have instead of forcing it through a railroad. 
and reuse the recipes that you have. You can change just a couple of ingredients and make something old into something totally new. We did this with, uh, I mean, things like just having fish tacos. We had never made fish tacos before. We had a whole bunch of fish, and we have been eating it and eating it and eating it, and we're, like, tired of fish. But then when we realized we'd never had fish tacos before, it suddenly made us excited to have fish again. So think about how you might be able to change up your quests and your combat to make something old into something new. Also, try to think about these keynotes and what you've eaten before. If you've had a ton of fish or a ton of Mexican food and you constantly find yourself eating Italian, switch it up. Use that as a way to say you're not going to meal plan for those things unless you really want them. Use that to make your grocery lists easier to design so you're not running to the grocery store or to uh, Don John to find new random quest ideas. Have some prepped up in your back pocket. Have a couple of one-shots ready just in case. Try to avoid the railroad as much as you can unless your players are all aware that that's what's going to be going on. And always buy a couple of backup ingredients and staples like milk, cheese, and eggs because you never know if you're going to want to scratch off something that you've pre-planned and instead want to do something a little bit more sandboxy with your dinner. Hopefully, these uh, have all helped you a little bit in pushing your way through understanding the railroad, the sandbox, and maybe even meal planning a little bit. Trust me, it really does make a difference to how you find yourself shopping and how much, how less often you go to the grocery store. You can even extend that meal plan out to two weeks or even 30 days and have just a wide variety of things that you know you're able to make and want to make and would like to try to make and shop for it all at once while leaving yourself some room and some flexibility to understand that just because you said you want tuna on Tuesday doesn't mean you might not want tacos instead. So that's all for the episode today. Please let me know your thoughts, your comments, or your episode ideas. I guarantee you, you have a chance of getting shouted out or at least having your content included, if that's what you'd like. All of my social media links and the contact information that you can use to get a hold of me can be found on the card website that's down below in the show notes. If you're looking for more content, check out my other podcast, which is called Pick Up Your Sticks. It's a long-form podcast about why gaming matters, co-hosted by myself and my dear friend, Walker Near. I'm really excited to be sharing this journey with you, and remember, love is the secret ingredient. Have a good day, friend. Thanks for stopping by.